0: This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by the City of Bisbee.
1: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. An American hero received some long-deserved recognition at the Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. Learn about the help and hope that exists in Tucson for people living with a communication disorder called aphasia. And new music from Gabrielle Petrangelo, one of Southern Arizona's most gifted singer-songwriters. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The streets, buildings, and monuments that make up Davis-Monthan Air Force Base are an honor roll of names that should not be forgotten. Each commemorates Air Force heroes or noteworthy individuals who served at the base since its founding in 1925. The most recent addition honors George Washington Biggs, a native of Nogales and one of the legendary Tuskegee Airmen, who were the first black military aviators in the United States Army Corps. Duncan Moon recently visited the base as the Davis-Monthan Community Resilience Center was officially named in tribute to Major Biggs and his individual accomplishments. The event began
2: with an Air Force color guard.
1: Colors! tense, Hut! hort, hearts, Forward! hearts.
2: The choice to name the Resilience Senator after Major George W. Biggs was fitting. By all accounts, he was a man of courage who displayed remarkable resilience his entire life. One might say it was in his blood. His father set a high bar, as one of the famed Buffalo soldiers, Levi Biggs, overcame extraordinary racial discrimination to reach the rank of Master Sergeant in the U.S. Army. Major Biggs' daughter, Rosario Biggs Dickinson, says her father would not have enjoyed all the fuss. She says he earned the recognition and his family is proud of his accomplishments.
3: It is very humbling to us. We are a very proud, proud Arizona family. We are extremely grateful and honored that he would be recognized.
2: Biggs Dickinson calls her father steely disciplined and unbending. He believed deeply in honor and he knew that a black man had little margin for error in a white man's military. He knew he could not make mistakes and was rigorous and exacting with himself and everyone around him.
3: There were no gray areas. He didn't have to explain it. Oh, my gosh, he was so strict. My whole vocabulary was yes, sir, no, sir. If we asked him, we could do something in school. If he said no, we never questioned it. It was just
2: absolute. Dr. Nate Carr, a retired lieutenant colonel and son of Colonel Nathaniel Carr, one of the original Tuskegee Airmen, was a friend of Major Biggs. He said Biggs achieved what he called the double V, the victory over the Nazis and Axis powers in World War II, and the victory over racial discrimination and segregation. Dr. Carr says he can only imagine the prejudice and bigotry Biggs faced in the early 40s. Carr says 30 years later, when he himself was looking to enter officer's training, the discrimination was still deep-rooted.
4: Well, I come along in 1971 in as my commander to endorse me, and I have to read what he said, because i dumped this from my mind. Sorry, I can't endorse a Negro to be an officer, because all Negroes are lazy and slumber.
2: Major Biggs really had two military careers. He tried to join in 1941 when he was 16. He was too young, but the day after his 18th birthday, he registered for the draft. At the time, he did not yet know how to drive a car, much less have any experience with aircraft. He trained at the Tuskegee Army Airfield in Alabama during World War II and finished his enlistment as a master sergeant in 1946. Two years later, Biggs re-enlisted as a non-commissioned officer in the newly created U.S. Air Force. He flew combat missions over North Korea and North Vietnam. And before retiring from the Air Force, he was the first African-American officer assigned to Davis-Monthan. Dr. Carr says Bigg's career took him all over the world, and that was rightly reflected in his memorial when he died two years ago.
4: At his memorial, we said goodbye. We said it in in Spanish, adios. Korean, because he was there. Singapore, Vietnamese, Dom Viet. Then Japan, sayonara. French, au revoir. And in German, i would be the same just said goodbye, farewell.
2: But he says Davis-Monthan choosing to name its resilience senator after Major George W. Biggs brings him new life.
4: That name can go on, and now he can say, hello. When is this dias. Sin eat Konnichiwa, bonjour. I'm getting tired. Coast. Hold.
2: For Arizona Public Media... I'm Duncan Moon.
1: On March 30th, the family of actor Bruce Willis announced that he would be stepping away from acting because he has been diagnosed with aphasia, a communication disorder that is more common than Parkinson's disease, but it rarely receives the same amount of attention. About 80% of those living with aphasia acquired it following a stroke, but it can also be the cause of a traumatic brain injury, an infection, or tumor. Here in Tucson, there is a support group called the Friends of Aphasia, They're led by Dr. Fabi Hirsch. She is CEO and Director of Clinical Services, and I ask her to tell us more about aphasia and their mission.
0: So we have conversation groups for people who are living with aphasia, which is a communication disorder that leads people to have difficulty with expressing themselves, so speaking and writing, but also taking information in oftentimes comprehending others and reading. So we have groups and we practice communication skills. So we have groups that work on reading and writing and conversation and public speaking even. And we also have interest-based groups. So we have a gardening group and we have an art group where people can share their interests as a way to Be excited about conversation again.
1: Okay, from my observations, no two people have a similar journey through aphasia.
0: So that is absolutely true. Each person has their own unique type of aphasia. When we do an assessment, we categorize people depending on certain skills that they're able to do or not do. But If you look at each individual, one person might struggle to say every single word they try to say, yet when they try to write, they may have much stronger skills. Another person might have more difficulty taking information in, but when they try to read or they try to speak, they might be much stronger in that way. So sort of the constellation of all the different language abilities and struggles are very unique.
1: About a year ago, I spoke to a a volunteer with your group. His name is Kirk, and he tells us how he acquired aphasia, and it's a little bit different.
4: My name is Kirk Markarian, and I'm a volunteer here at the Aphasia Center. I've been here over five years. Well, I've had three brain surgeries of my own, and the last one caused me some loss of speech. Right now, I sound okay, but given at various times, I do not. Uh, I've had that told to me by various doctors that that is aphasia. Um, So I came here seeing that I could help others maybe cope with what's going on in their own lives and guide them through exercises I've
0: done. So we're very fortunate to have some of our group leaders who have direct experience with aphasia, including Kirk, because I think unless you have actually experienced aphasia, it's very hard to know exactly what that feels like. I know we all have instances where we feel like something's on the tip of our tongue and we just can't get to it, can't remember someone's name. And that can be similar, but I I think it really doesn't truly give us a feeling for what it's like to be actually living with aphasia. And for everyone to feel very confident and comfortable in trying things and learning from each other through all of their experiences, whether they're a group member or a group leader.
1: Well, one of the things that I'm always most interested to hear is about the strategies that the group members share among themselves in order to deal with um, finding the right word when you need it. So Kirk shared one of those strategies with me.
4: My main example is when you're having a tough time finding a word, I try to find a way around the word. Uh, There's various techniques. One is listing all the things that describe that word. For example, the word orange. It's got holes in it. It's a color. It's round. It comes from a tree. And eventually, somebody will guess that word. And it rhymes with nothing.
0: The strategy that Kirk mentioned is one that we encourage a lot in the groups. So if somebody is struggling to come up with the word that they want to say, we'll encourage them to describe it, tell us something about it. Where would you find it? And we also encourage people to gesture or to write down a first letter of a word if they can. Sometimes that'll get folks right to the word it's likely that somebody else in the group will understand the target. And although we're all super patient about not jumping in, it can be really helpful for people to use that strategy so that we can all get beyond on the same page and understand what somebody is intending to talk about. So that's a super strategy, and Kirk just really described it beautifully there.
1: And he also stressed the importance of patience. When I asked him, what does he wish that more people understood about aphasia? He had this to say.
4: It's a level of patience that one will have to take when speaking with somebody who has aphasia, because they're working as hard as they humanly can to find the words they need to say. And the more pressure applied to somebody with aphasia to hurry up, slows down the process. Mm -hmm. So take your time, wait it'll come out.
0: So patience is so important in communicating with somebody who has any type of communication disorder. So one thing that we often struggle with are communication partners, even dear loved ones, who want to support the person who is living with aphasia by jumping in and providing what they think is the word that they're aiming for. And it's often done with the best of intentions. They don't want the person to struggle or to be unsuccessful. But jumping in and providing that word, instead of giving the person who has aphasia the opportunity to work at it themselves to get to the word, it really loses potential for that interaction to strengthen a person's word-finding abilities and communication skills.
1: Obviously, the announcement that came from Bruce Willis's family is going to raise the profile of aphasia. What kind of an opportunity does that mean for you and other people working with aphasia throughout the world to have a moment to get people to listen to this situation?
0: Certainly, our hearts go out to Bruce Willis and to his family during this very difficult time. Aphasia is a very difficult diagnosis, a very difficult communication disorder to to live with. And from the media, it seems like he has a very supportive family. And so I'm so thankful for that. I think it's really important that people don't feel alone and that they understand that there are resources in the community for them and their loved ones.
1: There are links to connect with the resources that Dr. Hirsch recommended and other stories about aphasia on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Singer and songwriter Gabrielle Petrangelo writes music from the heart. That purity is something that can be hard to take for a more cynical music listener like perhaps myself, but when listening to Gabrielle Petrangelo, there's not much use in resisting. Her songs remind you that deep down, somewhere underneath your armor, your emotional nerves are all still connected. Contemporary music often contains a lot of bravado and mask wearing, so I began our conversation by asking Petrangelo what it means to value sincerity and compassion instead of creating an artificial persona.
5: I kind of had struggled with that, like, thinking, am I supposed to be something different than this? You know, like, am I supposed to try to mask my songs in some, you know, cool or sarcastic way? Or, you know, I've definitely had moments of doubt, as I think all people and artists do. Um, But the reality is, is that the music I create Is just, this is how it comes out. And I've just, the older I've gotten, the more I've been able to trust that the less I judge it or try to constrict it, especially in the creative process, the more authentic it actually is to my voice and what I have to offer, like what I am, you know, without trying to be anything else. But I think we as humans, if we can feel something Um, we're alive, you know, and I think that in order to handle all the intensity of what's been going on in the world, it's easy to get numb or you maybe don't process stuff and it piles up and, and you get disconnected from your heart. And I think that that's the real power of being genuine is that sometimes music, whoever wrote it, you know, it doesn't even matter what it was originally about. If it strikes that chord in your heart and you just can feel something that you've been needing to feel and get out. Process through your system. I think, I think that's the real beauty behind art and why it's so important right now. That we don't numb out. That we need to <laughs> remember that we are vulnerable and that there are things that really mean something in this life. You know, and that yeah. each of us has that need to process and understand our experience.
1: Lines of Our Hands is a song that you've got done now, but it's part of the future for you, is it not?
5: I'm in kind of like halfway through my first full-length solo album since I released my solo album like in 1999 when I was a youngster. I'm in the middle of working on all this new material. I have so many new songs that happened that I've written in the last couple of years and I'm excited to share it. So Lines of Our Hands was kind of like the first one and I just wanted to finish something because of COVID
1: and stuff. Well, during the pandemic itself, you did something very brave. You made a video mm-hmm. of a song. Uh, it looked like it was sort of shot in your living room with some candles, mm-hmm. and you sent it to the Tiny Desk concert series. And I thought mm-hmm. it was a beautiful song, and it's, it's mm-hmm. become something that I've returned to a few times. And a, there's a lyric in the tune. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say this in a song before. I want to love you like you've never known you were worth.
5: I'll love you like you've never known your worst. Yeah, that's a song called Summer Rain. And at the time I wrote it, I was really grieving deeply an experience that I was having. And uh, that was just kind of like, it it was like the anthem of like self-love, I suppose.
1: But also giving that that love.
5: What is real love? Like, what is knowing your worst? Like, I'm not saying I have the answer of that, but that's a need we all have to feel that, you know?
1: And to give it, because even if we can't recognize our own value... I think mm-hmm. a lot of us really live to celebrate the value of others,
5: for sure. I do tend to be on the side that you have to know how to do that for yourself before you really can can do it for others. There's that like cliche saying, but i I think there's some truths to that that I've been grappling with.
1: Did it feel good to record it that way? Was it therapeutic or meaningful for you to commit that song to tape in that such a raw fashion as you did?
5: yeah. It felt apropos of the times because that was like right when we were all homebound, you know. I'd written that song before. You know, I wrote wrote that song. It's on my EP that I released in early 2020 before the pandemic. But it felt very apropos for the times that we were in. And I I just thought it might be, be, um, you know, soothing. (laughs) That song is very soothing to me.
1: Before this interview, we were talking a little bit about your home recording collection, Gabrielle. But what shape did the home recording collection uh, eventually assume?
5: I've been thinking about this Kickstarter, um, hoping to raise the funds I need to finish the album I'm working on. And I thought how cool it would be to offer a home recording collection to my fundraising contributors. Like that's like special for them, you know, um, that nobody's heard before. I've been meaning to do this literally for years because I have tons and tons of home recordings, and I went through the process of just going through all the old CDs, all the stuff I had on computer, backup hard drives, and I went through the years starting in 2006 through 2020. It was just so much fun. I just I, I just tried to follow my intuition of, like, kind of showing the, the, the pattern of, my songwriting and how it's changed and sort of follow a thread. And I didn't think about it too hard. I just tried to go with my gut on like what should be included, but I ended up with 17 songs and um, I'm really excited to, to share it. In addition to that, I'm hosting a private concert in, uh, in the Barrio Viejo neighborhood. You can find all that at my website. Um, that's the next time I'll be playing. Um, it's going to be a really special show. Just me in Barrio Viejo.
1: Well, Gabrielle, can you uh, tell us about a song from the Home Recording Collection that we can play out with right now?
5: This is the first track on the collection from 2008. It's called Into the Well, and I recorded it at home when I was living in Barrio Viejo, and it's just like a fun, whimsical song.
1: Gabrielle Petrangelo plans to complete her new album by next spring. You can find more music, videos, and information about her Kickstarter project and Barrio Viejo solo show on her webpage at GabriellePietrangelo.com. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's News Director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Itai Sofer. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.
0: Thank you to the City of Bisbee for their support of Arizona Spotlight.